Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by talking about how to identify pre-tied bow ties and shame the wearers. I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, coming to you from sunny Washington, D.C. With me on the line from Princeton, New Jersey, on his birthday, happy birthday to you, my co-host, <laughs> David Wheel. David, how's it going? Um, it's, I'm, I'm well. I'm well. I just texted my mom, as I always do, to thank her for enduring me in her body for nine months before pushing me into this cold, fearful, honor-driven, and interest-based world that we live in. Well, that is that is delightful. I don't know that I have ever remembered to thank my mom on my birthday, <laughs> but I wasn't really there for I don't remember all of it, so I'm sure <laughs> yeah. I did all the work. Yeah, right. I was sure two weeks really. two weeks late during a heat wave, however. Oh God, your poor mother. Yeah, she. But I was. But it was still. But my my sister was like a seventy two hour labor, so I she, I, I'm fine in comparison. But yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, this is a show. <laughs> it sometimes talks about world affairs. <laughs> and, and today, the particular topic we're going to talk about is America's cultural projection into the world. Now, uh, David will have to take a bit more of the discussion load on this topic, because while I am reasonably well-traveled, David has actually lived in a lot of other countries uh, for periods of time that I have not. Uh, I've mostly just been visiting lots of places. Um so we're going to start off by saying, David, you just spent a lot of time in Pakistan. Oh, you spent a lot of time in Pakistan. You spent a lot of time in Turkey. Uh, what were the two predominant images of the United States in those two countries? Well, so um, I think um, let's, let's talk a little historically, a little contemporarily, a little theoretically. I think, you know, one of the things that I found as I traveled was not necessarily that, um, you know, Oh, uh, in George Bush's America, in, you know, Barack Obama's America, people must see the world as I, as an American think they do, you know, that's, that's the main, um, the, my main realization as I've done a lot of traveling is I see the world and I interact with Americans talking about America's role in the world. And the frames of perception that I and we have, um, in some expect, in some sense, I expect to be shared by the rest of the world traveling. Um, it's not like I have realized that those frames are, you know, do not capture the nuances of how others perceive America. And therefore, you know, while I was expecting them to have a bad view of America, they have a positive view. You know, that's not, it's not, I'm not saying that, um, it's just that the, you know, the frames of, uh, these frames of perception lead me to, or led me, and I think lead many still, uh, to assume that the terms of our debates are simply being echoed, uh, abroad. And so, you know, for Pakistan, for example, um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, one of the major issues while I was there was this, was the drone campaign. Uh, and, you know, in America, to the extent that people were following this issue, um, not as a security question, um, 
but as you know, following it from the perspective, so they might think of what Pakistanis think about this. Uh, there was a natural um, sense again. There was a natural uh, urge to see it through the lens of America's own experience. You know, oh, America is is bombing another country. You know, oh, we did this in Vietnam. We tried to um, we tried to pacify this insurgency through air superiority. This is just so typical of America. Uh, you know, not putting our own people at risk, but just callously destroying, you know, the lives of, of people on the ground, which is not wrong, right? But it's just our frame of perception. Um, that frame was also shared, indeed, by many Pakistanis um, <clears throat> who saw it as a, um, you know, an unacceptable violation of their own sovereignty, uh, who, who went to the, uh, you know, these, these, uh, instances where, um, either because of mistakes in intelligence or simply because of collateral damage, um, you know, these innocent people were killed, you know, wedding parties that were bombed, um, and they were horrified by those things as many Americans were, but it was also the case that, um, a not insignificant number, but a difficult, it's a difficult topic to study, but you know, there were people who, who had the thought that, well, our country can't solve this problem. And those people are going to destroy us. You know, the, the insurgents, the, these, uh, militants, you know, some of them were simply hill people who didn't want to be told what to do and pushed around and weren't going to threaten anyone outside their own communities. Um, but they also were, um, host to more ideologically motivated, uh, groups that, that did potentially pose a threat to, um, and still do in certain respects, uh, pose a threat to the stability of, of Pakistan as well as Afghanistan. And so there were also, uh, Pakistanis who a little bit more carefully, you know, a little bit more quietly, um, but occasionally, you know, made public their view that, um, well, somebody has got to do it and they got to do it somehow. And, you know, if you got to find these people and, and take them out, it's a tragedy if other people, uh, innocent people, children are killed, but, um, well, you know, it's a good thing that America can get it done. Mm. And that view, um, again, you know, the problem is, and that view is almost never shown in America. Right. But, but this is the thing is it, in a way it, it shouldn't be shown because if it were, then you'd have, right. You know, the Sean Hannity's and the, and the Bill O'Reilly's just saying like, look, you know, they like it. They just, they want more of it. We should do more of it. Right. And that, and that can't be allowed that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Um, but it's, it was an interesting thing to see, um, and experience when I was there. And, you know, very, very, you know, pretty marginally in terms of my own conversations, but then also, but then a little bit more as I got into, um, as I became more aware of media 
figures to read and sources of um you know academics who were who were writing about this issue so some of it was firsthand some of it was uh you know through sort of quote unquote experts uh who uh, of whom I became more aware as a result of being in that context um so that's a strong example that uh you know people it, but and it leaves you with that quandary though of again as you know so i go i see my understanding of the world challenged i react to that i learn from it but then i you know at the end of the day i am an american i do want to think about the knowledge that i gain in terms of what it can do in america and for the world you know f as a result of american policy <laughs> it's like I've learned this secret knowledge that must not be shared right. because, you know, the right wiggers will, uh, will just run with it. No, yeah. that's, I can see that as being a realistic problem, especially since, um, a lot of the stuff has, I mean, that's sort of the whole point of the show is well, these things have nuance to them and you take something like that and you give it to people whose entire thing is to blow up nuance and just make everything about the gut reaction to how something feels and you could end up with something pretty disastrous. I mean, um, if we, especially since if we take that and run too far with it and we really loosen up drone, you know, the restrictions on what we're willing to bomb with drones and bomb way more things with drones, there's going to be way more collateral damage. And eventually that scale of people saying, well, the collateral damage is bad, but this has to be done, is going to shift in favor of the collateral damage being worse than what's being done. Right. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, it'd be really interesting, you know, I wish I knew more about various theaters of the cold war because I'm certain that the same dynamic was at play then where, um, you know, let's bracket. Well, let's not, I mean, let's just, let's, let's briefly touch on Vietnam um, before maybe examining other, other cases that are less, um, you know, because part of the point of this is to acknowledge the, um, the places where the American mind goes, you know, where American cultural knowledge and focus is, uh, is based, but then move beyond those to, right. you know, the fuller reality of the world, if that uh, it makes any sense. I think uh, it does make sense. I also think that part of it is even when um, we don't have enough information, and no one ever has enough uh, information to really go, you know, we, there's nothing we can do to completely cover all of these topics, and plenty of people listening are going to have already have heard a lot of it, but if we can just have a conversation that leads people to use the tools to stop and think about it more in the greater context of what we've discussed over the, ser the whole course of this podcast. And that's something. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you think about, so, you know, Americans think about American power and a lot of the terms of that, of the discussion that will then follow the frame of the discussion will partly be, will, will, will have been set partly by people's, experience perceiving debating thinking about reacting to um you know bush's war in iraq part of it will be uh the drone campaign in yemen or the drone campaign in you know the tribal areas of pakistan 
the border region with Afghanistan. But a lot of it is will have been inherited from Vietnam and our cultural memory of Vietnam. Um, you know, but then even there, I, I repeat more or less what I was saying before, which is that the overall, and you know, we speak, we speak from sort of the center left on most issues. Um, and I think the center and left, I mean, the main stream perspective on Vietnam and even among right wingers, uh, this is probably true is, you know, it was a, it was a blunder. <clears throat> we got in, we slipped into the quagmire and then either, you know, from the left, tragically, absurdly, you know, buffoonishly and clumsily further entangled ourselves. And then, then probably closer, you know, for on the right, it, except for the, with the exception of the, the true revisionists who think we should have, we should have gone in, we should have fought harder, we should have stayed until we won. You know, there's whatever small section of the American society holds that view. You know, we've never talked to right. anybody who said that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, indeed, it's a, a sly reference. Let's not to, name all the names. But... Right. Anyway. Um, yeah, but, you know, but more people on the right would probably say, okay, yes, it, it was a tragedy, but it was a, tra it was a, it was a, tra it was a heroic tragedy. And, you know, these people, you know, America, um, sacrificed so much and it was, a, you know, there may have been a mistake, but it was a noble cause. Um, you know, so probably, that's probably the, more or less the frame, or that's, that's what I understand in general terms, the frame to be, um, but, you know, I remember in high school, uh, I went to Aikido uh, practice, and one of the guys I was there with was, um, you know, and a lot of my friends in high school as well were Vietnamese. And a lot of the Vietnamese in America are, you know, the descendants of people who sided with us, you know, who didn't want the communists to take over, who genuinely... you know, who relied on American power and were betrayed. And, you know, ultimately the ones who got here uh, were not sort of ultimately betrayed because they, they did find refuge. Um, but this, you know, the generation of the boat people, um, you know, it's, it's a complicated story. And it's not, it's, you know, again, I'm not saying that the, that general cultural view of it being a mistake and we shouldn't have gotten involved and we had no right to be there. Um, I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying again that that is the you know the mainstream sort of that's a mainstream view and it needs to be uh, supplemented by these other views from other communities, both you know I just mentioned the boat people originating uh, in Vietnam becoming Vietnamese Americans, but then also. Um, you know, to what extent, I mean, that, you know, what I just described doesn't remotely address the experience of, you know, African-Americans who fought in the war, many of whom I'm sure value the, the service, uh, you know, many of the descendants of whom are the, or the veterans of that war, you know, who are, are, I'm sure proud of their service, but many who probably felt much like 
um, Muhammad Ali, you know, who said famously, he has of, a quarrel with the Viet Cong. Exactly. Yeah. The not, you know, no, no Viet Cong ever called me. Yeah. The things that he would be called in America. Um, you know, and so, uh, yeah, it's just, um, I think in general that, uh, it's so important to stretch our, to just assume that we're whatever we think we know. Indeed, we, we should have some basis for being confident that we're mostly right, but we should still seek out these additional voices to, to supplement and see around, uh, these biases in our own understanding. Right. Um, and some of those will challenge and some of those will support what we already thought. Um, but you know, go find these people. You know, what do the, what do the, what do the victims of, um, you know, ISIS think about America's presence in the Middle East? Probably think very complicated things. Right. Um, yeah. Actually, now with the Kurds as well, I wish I wish I had a better firsthand understanding of um, of politics and culture in the KRG, um, as well as in the you know the Turkish Kurdish areas. But um, I don't know if you've seen these uh, headlines. Sort of, there's an editorial cartoon going around of um, you know, like a Kurdish soldier with the world hiding behind him and the Kurdish soldier, like fending off an attack by this sort of cartoonish bearded guy in black pajamas with, you know, ISIS labeled on his chest. And that's the first panel. And the second panel, uh, once the, you know, the, the brave Kurdish soldier has, you know, pushed the ISIS guy to the ground, then you see the world stabbing him in the back. Mm. I've not seen that cartoon, but, I've seen headlines that give across similar ideas. And you said in an earlier episode, you were talking about how Americans tend to have this uncomplicated, positive view of the Kurds that is really not helpful. Right. Well, and this continues. Um, you know, we, 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 we framed this conversation as one where we were going to talk about the world's view of America, but um, perhaps inevitably we've, Talking about America's view sort of the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, to some extent, it's true. It can't always be helped, but I mean, the two are connected. There's, it's it's not as though it's not as though we just completely made it about us. Although, in a way, it was about us. We made it less about us, so that's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this is one of these things where uh, I'm not I'm not remotely embarrassed to care more about America than the rest of the world. Right. That's my duty as a citizen. Um, that being said, you know, the reason I care in part is because of America's ability to have influence over the world. And so, you know, to avoid the stain of allowing America's influence to be negative um, you know, and, and the urge to 
be proud in America's role being positive. You know, they were, you know, yeah. Anyway, um, so you know, when thinking about America's, or, you know, America's perception by the world, you know, the perception of America by the world, um, the whole point for me is to like bring it back around to America's sense of its own place in the world. Right. Um, so that is, that is the goal, but yeah, no, the, the, um, I, I have often, uh, thought back to that episode where we were talking about the Kurdish issue and regretted my, I'm sure, you know, stumbling and um, filled rambling presentation of that topic. Uh, but the core of what I said, I feel has been vindicated, um, or it can, you know, I think it continues to be, to be vindicated in part by what's, you know, what's got, what's going on today where the Kurds absolutely, I mean, you know, the Kurds is the sort of unnecessarily broad, um, category, but just to, you know, the, the, the decision to move ahead with the independence referendum brought that knife in the back on them. You know, it was, it was an inevitable result. What did they think would happen? And this comes in the, in the context of, uh, you know, not of America stepping in and using the Kurds, you know, to, to fight our battles. Um, it wasn't, you know, this isn't some issue of the world full of, you know, globalist and sort of faceless imperial powers, you know, pushing into the Middle East and setting them against each other. That has a, <clears throat> you know, that type of dynamic of external pressure in the region has an incredibly strong, an incredibly important role. But in this particular issue, in this particular moment, um, you know, domestic, inter, you know, domestic is, is a wrong word to use given that the Kurdish population and, um, you know, Kurdish attempts at autonomous government spread over, you know, the borders of uh, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. Uh, so domestic is not exactly the right word, but, you know, internal Kurdish politics, cleavages, power struggles have both led to this moment where they, um, where, uh, you know, the, you know, Barzani has <clears throat> stayed in power long past his welcome, long past his legal mandate and attempted to gain legitimacy for doing so by, wrapping himself in the flag of victory against ISIS, claiming international legitimacy through that, and then attempting to gain a domestic, you know, gain domestic internal support uh, through the referendum, but doing so in the face of internal opposition. And now he reaps the whirlwind, you know, that uh, the inevitable response was going to be this backlash. And I feel like in many of the instances where, you know, in this case, America's role is not, I don't get the sense that within America, there are many Americans saying, you know, we owe it to the Kurds. We should be ashamed that we're not doing more to help them. But I've, 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 I've picked up on that a bit. You know, that, that is, the narrative is there to some yeah, extent. I, I, I would say I've heard quite a few people say that. Well, maybe I've been 
distracted by my teaching load here then. So you've been distracted uh, by knowing too much about what's actually going on and not what other people say is going on. <laughs> you know, that's, that is really the problem with a lot of, uh, experts, I think, mm. or, I mean, that's part of the, that's part of the structural flaw of our democracy is that, you know, a lot of, so many of the people who are talking about what's going on and spreading some sense of what's going on are doing so like, I mean, and frankly, we are, um, unfortunately we do this a lot is, uh, we talk at a level that is slightly more knowledgeable than the average bear, but, but still not actually expert. Right. Uh, and we're doing so with the attempt with like, a, you know, we're trying to model and learn this genuine attempt to approach knowledge, even when we don't have, uh, that expert knowledge, you know, to have a good heuristic and, uh, honestly seek more information and, and, you know, better polish our own lenses as it were. Um, <laughs> but the experts are so busy being experts that, right. They don't, you know, not all the information uh, flows I mean, down well, from the Part of us. that is, you know, the whole way we've structured this show, the way we framed it is people who listen to it, you know, both of them, um, <laughs> they're going to hear what we're saying. And people should not walk away from any of our episodes saying, oh, I know all there is to know about the Kurdish problem. I understand yeah. the problem that the Kurds are currently facing with this referendum. I understand all of this. You listen to this show, and my hope is that you'll come away thinking, wow, now I know more than I did, and I know that there's even more to know. And I know that the simplistic version that I saw on the news or in that one article I read in the New York Times is not enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder if any of the people who are listening really need to hear that message, but uh, that's, a different, that's a different question. That's possibly also true, but... Yeah. Um, Bear in mind that uh, if those of you who listen to this podcast would like to send us your questions about that sort of thing, you can email us at fearhonorandinterestpodcast at gmail.com with your suggestions on how differently to frame some of these topics, and uh, we can read your letters on the air. Nicely done. Yes, Nicely I, always, done. I always have to give in a little plug for the uh, all, for all matters of the show. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so just one, going back to the, the broader, you know, opening topic question of, uh, you know, Hey, David, like you travel around the world. What do these people think about us? Well, again, you know, there's no simple answer to that question, exactly. but the main, you know, the main answer <laughs> in my experience is that there really is a bottomless appetite for, um, for conspiracy theories. Oh, you know, so, a, you know, the who do you think behind that? <laughs> Took me a second. Took me a second, <laughs> Charles. I I got your number. Um, but no, the um, you know what I was describing before was the way in which you know honest people who are honest to themselves. People who are skeptical, curious, intelligent, um, and charitable, you know, who exist 
all over the world, you know, the way that those people might come up with original ideas about things that are happening. So, you know, people who would say, as I was indicating before, you know, I don't like the idea of another country bombing my country, but when my own government is in bed with militant groups and uses them as an instrument of state policy, and when the effects of that long-standing policy have been so negative for my own country, and these people pose a clear and present danger to my own society, then, even though I have these other qualms, you know, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world for Americans who, you know, maybe they don't know this level of detail, but, you know, maybe they do. Like, you know, American soldiers who are still getting, you know, soldiers and airmen who are getting, still getting PTSD because they're watching these people and they're watching their families and they're watching their kids play in the compound, you know, and they're waiting for the moment when the kid goes from, you know, 29 meters away to 30 meters away so that they can say, now's the time to drop the, you know, to fire the missile, mm -hmm. right? Like, and they don't necessarily, again, this, um, this, uh, sort of fair minded global citizen that I'm referring to, um, you know, they don't necessarily go into that level of detail, but, you know, they say, okay, weighing all these things against each other, I understand, I have my own view of how complicated this is, and I don't simply say, you know, America is the worst, here they are again, trampling on the sovereignty and um, callously murdering, you know, the people of this region. Um, you know, those people are, those people are definitely out there, and... Um, you know, so we're, we're speaking to, to them and, you know, and, uh, and trying to speak to their equivalents here. That being said, those people, those people definitely exist, but, you know, their opposite number or their opposite, uh, sort of character type, the avid reader of conspiracy theories, you know, I think sadly is, uh. you know, to the extent that they can be separated, uh, and, and turned into different personalities, you know, that, that second, uh, you know, information consumers, I think much more, much more widespread. And some of the conspiracy theories that I've read about, um, you know, about Pakistan and about Turkey are pretty spectacular. And my studies, you know, compare the development of, the state in both countries, um, the rise of nationalism and the development of the state in the first half of the 20th century in Turkey and Pakistan. And, um, in that context, I was very excited when I found this one book, uh, in Lahore, you know, bought it in a, in a bookshop there. It was a collection of essays by a journalist who had, uh, traveled to Turkey and was from, uh, Lahore and came back and, you know, <clears throat> published this book of his reflections of Turkey on the one hand over the years and um, sort of his sense of what Turkey was like described in Urdu for his fellow Pakistanis. And there's a combination of like little, you know, sort of travelogues about going to Turkey and you know living there. 
and these uh, more recent editorial pieces where he talked about how, you know, look, America clearly wants to destabilize and destroy Turkey in the same way that it destabilized and destroyed Pakistan. And America supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which has bled over into Pakistan in order to weaken us so that America can, can rule this region. And they're clearly doing the same thing in Syria, backing the rebels there so that the effect will be political destabilization in Turkey because they cannot bear that a strong Muslim state, you know, exist in the Middle East. And there's just, you have to take your hat off to this capacity for, you know, historical thinking and pattern recognition, which is in certain, I mean, in a, in this bizarre sort of way, it's, it's sophisticated, you know, to come to say, oh yes, you know, indeed the American support for proxies, like it, there's a mirror of that in what happened, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the early eighties after the 79 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and now, um, for the last several years in Syria, but it's like, it takes a special level of bizarre, bad faith mistrust to think, you know, okay, what was, wait, what was America's relationship to Pakistan? And what was America's relationship to Turkey at the, you know, at the time? It's like, America can't bear to have a strong Muslim state exist in the world. It's like, well, okay, maybe there, maybe that level of antipathy is, uh, is correct. You know, you look at, I mean, particularly now with Donald Trump, you know, we've talked about this, that, uh, you know, to have, um, detected that sort of anti-Muslim sentiment in American policy is certainly not, uh, insane, even if it's perhaps incorrect. I mean, Saudi Arabia stands out as a big example of a place where we're trying very hard not to destabilize. Well, exactly. But this, and this is my point. So Saudi Arabia, key American ally in both of these contexts, you know, Turkey, NATO ally, you know, utterly crucial to the strategy, uh, of NATO defense that, you know, Turkey has the second largest army in the, um, you know, in the alliance. And in both of these cases, we were defending against something else, you know, not with, uh, you know, strong foresight, not with the greatest strategic outlook, uh, you know, clearly with very short term thinking and, um, you know, falling prey to optimists who, <clears throat> didn't adequately imagine the ramifications of, uh, you know, of these policies of arming groups that we, that we could never control. And in the end, um, at least in Afghanistan, very obviously, uh, we were just sowing the dragon's teeth in a way that, um, we would come back to, uh, they would come back to haunt us. And now, you know, we'll only time will, time will indeed tell how foolhardy our policy in, uh, in Syria was.
Um, you know, but to take that and generate this like sort of constant global view of America's uh, desire to like destroy Muslim states was I had to I had to take my hat off uh, in in praise as I as I read it, um, and in terms of you know how America is viewed in the world, despite the presence of these slivers of charity and individual thinking and rational thinking um, leading into very unexpected nuanced views that I sort of started the, our conversation today with. I think it's definitely the case that, um, you know, the predominant view is this heavily negative, um, heavily biased, very irrational um, perspective along the lines of what I just described. Um, but that view still doesn't, it doesn't exactly fit the terms that Americans think of, right? Yeah, well, that leads me to, I mean, the immediate thought that I have after that is, in those places you've been, what is the level of separation between their thought of what the American government is doing and what they think of you when they meet you as an individual American? And what do they think of Americans as a people, not a government? Oh, well, that's pretty, that's been pretty constant, you know, that a lot of people have been um, very, you know, I mean, it's just uh, people are, in general, people are polite as individuals. Yeah. Um, people are open and kind and particularly there's the novelty of being able to speak in their own language, um, or really speak in a language that they speak with me rather than, um, me trying to speak with them in English. And, um, you know, so that, that's, that's a, that's a constant, um, and almost, I mean, I, it didn't even occur to me to, to mention something like that because I mean, that's yeah. as, as I was thinking, we were talking about this, um, in general, people always say, oh, the people there are so friendly. And I talk to people who've you know, gone to any number of places, not just the Middle East, but throughout the entire world. And they always come back saying, oh, the people there are so friendly. And I mean, if you think about it, it's not that you know, that any particular area is friendly. It's just that everybody tends to be friendly with individuals that they meet, unless you're in France or New York City. Yeah. So you know, those are kind of the only two exceptions to people just being nice and friendly. Um, you know, I did have this, uh, this funny, you know, microcosmic experience getting my haircut, um, there where immediately after the coup attempt in Turkey last, uh, year, I went and got my haircut and I was waiting in this group of people. And there's one guy, you know, in front of me who saw me in the mirror as I sat down, he was getting his haircut and started asking me questions about, you know, about America. And it just got very hostile. You know, the tone, you know, was very, very hostile. And he like, this is a very Turkish move that he, you know, asked me what my name was. And then he, he said he decided that he would call me Murat instead of David, because Murat is a much better name. Oh, you know, and that's, I mean, this is, a, this is a very Turkish move here insofar as, uh, you know, the, the current state of Turkey contains this tremendous ethnic 
diversity that has been um, overlaid with this Turkish nationalism. You know that this that this particular instance is a is sort of an encapsulation of you know so old villages that had Greek or Armenian names that have been renamed uh, with Turkish names by the Turkish Republic. Uh, people who are uh, you know, people whose names have been forced through the, you know, the new structure of the language that was generated in the language reforms of the twenties and thirties, you know, these, uh, it was a very Turkish, very typically sort of Turkish thing that it did. It was like, Oh, David, huh? Murat. Murat is a much better name. <laughs> While you're in Turkey, you should have this Turkish name. I mean, but that's not um, so different no, but, from what we always do here in America, where the foreign students come over and like... Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Okay, your name while you're in America is Kim, or your name while you're over in America, you're John, you know? Right. Well, exactly. And I mean, as we were saying before, I mean, as you just mentioned before, um, you know, it's not like, you know, the people, you know, it's not like, oh, you go to Italy and, oh, the Italians are so kind, you know, or you go to Morocco and it's like, oh, the Moroccans are, are so generous and warm and open it's like well most of the time if you're nice to people those people as individuals will be warm and nice and kind to you as well in the same fashion um if you are you know if you don't speak some other language and someone comes and their name is from that other language and it has phonetics that you can't reproduce and it it's just a it's a pattern of sounds that you have to remember and then reproduce but you're not used to it. So the first time you hear it, it's just a garble. And so you respond and it's the garble, right? Like that's just what happens all around the world. Um, and we should all try a little harder, obviously. Um, but you know, it's, uh, this, this is, I don't want to get too far afield into sort of, actually, we're going to talk about this subsequently, um, mm -hmm sort of microaggressions and, you know, cultural divides. Um, but I think, you know, this type of thing is, is not so, um, it's, it's just human frailty. It's not necessarily political, but anyway, the point, you know, the end of this terrible rambling story about, about my haircut at, at the post coup Turkey is that this guy was being very aggressive and this was just one example, but you know, just lots of pointed questions about America and, you know, who, who was really behind this coup and, and stuff like that. Um, but then as he left, the barber was like, welcomed me into the chair, offered me something to drink, you know, insisted that I take something to drink out of his refrigerator. Um, and then sheepishly said to me, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good sort of colloquial translation, but... <clears throat> he said, um, yeah, so he said, you know, that's one of our classic Turkish jackasses. <laughs> hey, you know, man, that's, I mean, that's like, that's yeah. more or less, you know. I mean, we all know that guy in America, too. Like, yeah. Sometimes that guy's a liberal, sometimes that guy's a conservative, but we all know that guy. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, the the actual word that he said was ukuz. Uh, so like a Turk, you know, it was the, it was the expression he used, which means, which is like a bull. Mm. Um, but the equivalent, you know, the, the direct translation would be bull, but the actual meaning, meaning would be jackass. jackass. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and it was just lovely, you know, and again, it's like, I interacted in both cases, I was interacting with individuals, but in the one instance, he saw me not as an individual, but as this American, right. You know, part of the dark forces encircling his beloved country, you know, whereas this other guy was like, Oh, here's a customer. He's a nice guy. Right. Here he speaks Turkish. I want to chat with him, you know, and then he wanted to, you know, make sure that there were no hard feelings and was very sweet and kind. Um, and yeah, so again, as you know, on this individual level, of course, all these places, uh, right. you know, this humanity is still there. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, the, the slogan is usually death to America, not death to Americans. Right. When it comes out in that context. So, right. yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, this is, I'm amazed. We've already managed to go about 50 minutes without just talking about um, a very select part of Turkey and Pakistan in terms of how people reacted, which shows that this is a very fertile area of discussion. Um, from my own travels, I, as I've said, I don't, haven't lived places as much as you have. So I have, you know, slightly less direct experience on these things, but I do always find amusing whenever you're talking, whenever, like in time I've spent in England, that one of the first things I always ask is, do you own a gun? <laughs> like that's just sort of the America, the view of Americans is you guys all own guns. Why do you own guns? And had that be when I was an exchange student over there for a while, it was, um, you know, you, you start off, you're like, no, no, no. There's like six Americans over there. And you're like, no, 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 we don't all own guns. It's just, that's just, you know, how people view it. And then the one girl from South Carolina in the group was like, oh, I own a gun and I've shot someone. <laughs> and it was just like, okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. It's because it's, as you said, like there's there's the view of what are stereotypes of Americans versus what do they think of the American government versus what do they think of individual Americans when they run into them, and it seems to be a nice constant pretty much throughout the world that, um, you know, people want to be nice and friendly to the individual who's in front of them, and part of the problem is we don't spend enough time with an individual in front of us from other countries, you know, when you and. Yeah. Well, but there's also, I think it's, um, you know, there are certain contexts in which this uh, choice of approach is activated or, or not. But, you know, I mentioned before that there is humanity everywhere. And I really meant that in the sense of individuals interacting with, with individuals as individuals. And, you know, not, I mean, to the extent possible, um clouding their experience of that moment with preconceptions and biases, but just reacting to what's actually happening in front of them. That's humanity. By contrast, um, you know, this Turkish jackass, uh, saw in me an excuse or an opportunity to blow off steam about America and about, you know, his, his sense of grievance at Turkey's perceived weakness, you know, vulnerability. Um, he wasn't interacting with me as a human being to a human being. He was using me as this thing, you know, for him to, to vent his own spleen. And, um, obviously that happens all the time. Um, but I feel that when, you know, when I said we could all do better, we all must do better. 
that I think, uh, you know, and again, in a pre prelude to perhaps next week's conversation, um, you know, the, the debate about, about microaggressions, which is again, what I referred to with the name thing. Um, you know, we can all do better to interact with each other as human beings and, and not, um, not be so callous on the one hand or so tired and frustrated and offended on the other. Well, something I've been curious about when it comes to people's views of American policy versus talking to Americans. Um, have you noticed at all when it comes to a discussion of American policy with anyone, does it seem to change how they talk about either to you or about Americans in general that we have you know, a democracy that in theory each American you run into has had some responsibility to vote and have some direction in this versus a lot of the, you know, if we know as Americans, if we're talking to somebody who's from Iran, they have no say in a lot of what their government is doing. I mean, they have elections that can choose part of the course, but the parts that we're really upset about are not things that an Iranian citizen is going to be able to change. Yeah. You know, actually the more that I've thought about that, you know, um, I actually, I mean, there are ways in which the kinds of things over which the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard have control are shielded from popular the popular will in a way that is not equivalent to, but is analogous to, you know, the ways in which, um, certain elements of the American government are so deeply entrenched that, you know, changing them democratically is nearly impossible. Right. It would have to be, you know, there'd have to be election after election after election, all delivering, you know, the same message before. So what you're telling me is you're a deep state conspiracy theorist. <laughs> right. Exactly. We have our own. Right. Right. So, I mean, obviously, as I, I mean, I, as I tried to say, um, you know, analogous, not equivalent right. because, um, you know, the difference is that in America, you could have those sustained electoral outcomes that would eventually create a, you know, that change. Um, it's just that our, our politics are very divided. Um, and, you know, and make that change near, you know, essentially impossible. Um, but not actually constitutionally impossible. Uh, whereas by contrast with Iran, you also have divided politics. Um, but you have the system where it just wouldn't change. You know, you'd be, t the changes would have to occur through, um, through different means, you know, they'd have to, the, the forces, the powers that be, um, you know, the Supreme, uh, you know, the, the Guardians Council, the Council of Experts, the Vilayat al and, you know, members of the, um, uh, Revolutionary Guard would have to intuit that the winds were changing and then decide to change their own behavior, um, as opposed to getting those formal constitutional signals, which they've already gotten. You know, I mean, that's the situation we're in now is, yeah, yeah. Anyway, whatever, without going into that too much. So yeah, that I think this actually brings us to an interesting stopping point because we're about at the hour-long mark, and we're we're trying, dearly, dear listeners, to keep these 
about an hour. Um, we noticed that we had been sort of letting them get longer and longer and longer. And uh, after having, we keep saying we're going to try to make them short, and we keep making them uh, longer and longer and longer. So I'm just going to jump to this week's sign-off, which is about usage of time and punctuality. <laughs> so right now, uh, I was not respecting everyone's time well enough to do my math and backwards induction for my schedule properly. And I set up uh, I set up a date for noon. Um, so I'm supposed to be meeting somebody at noon. And normally when we do this podcast, we talk for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, sometimes even an hour. And we start at 10 a.m. on Sunday, which means that with a podcast then going for you know, an hour and 20 minutes sometimes, this would put me well past noon before the podcast ended, let alone giving me enough time to edit it and post it online, which I like to do as soon as we're done. So the question you may be asking yourself is, Charles, why well you wouldn't be asking yourself you'd be asking me charles why are you still talking why is this sign off even happening couldn't you just say goodbye and then hang up right now <laughs> wouldn't that be the smart thing to do wouldn't that be the best use of uh of of, of your time and our time uh why would you waste our time with just a stam uh, 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 you know just a stammering uh sign off when you really need to be going is that <laughs> Is that punctuality that you said was important, really important enough to you to stop listening to your own voice for just a few minutes, turn this thing off, and then start editing it? And all I can really say about that is it goes back to this one little thing that I want to say. Uh, it's a poem. I'm going to begin with a quick little poem for you that will explain what I'm talking about. I'm just going to get through the whole thing, but it's not going to take that long. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long gray beard.